Welcome, and thank you for joining this conversation on nuclear industry. Those of you who don't know me, my name's Andy Moody, and I will be guiding you through this session. I am a disputes partner here in the London office of Baker McKenzie and chair the Energy Mining and Infrastructure Group for the EMEA region. I am delighted to be joined by two of my colleagues, um, Neil Donahue, who's a partner also in our London office and heads up the firm's global nuclear practice, and also Tanya Aurora, who is a senior associate also in the London office in the same team. So both, uh, both Tanya and Neil are key members of our energy mining and infrastructure practice. And I've spent more than the last decade, if I'm not giving away their ages or anything, advising on the nuclear sector with work for a number of clients. And they're also leading one of the largest and most high profile projects in the nuclear space most recently. They're acting in relation to the development and finance financing of the Barak nuclear power plant in Abu Dhabi. So welcome to Neil and Tanya. So today we're going to discuss all things nuclear and the role that nuclear can play in the energy transition and in facilitating net zero goals and commitments. So I will launch straight in and ask you my first question. And that is that I'm hearing and reading a lot about the nuclear world this day. I think we all see it constantly in the press and as well as those who are specialist practitioners and governments focus on it as well. So I'm hearing and reading a lot about nuclears these days. It's often talked about in the press and there's a number of government policies are now focused on nuclear being part of the country's energy mix. I've also seen that it's now likely to be in the EU taxonomy mix and that it's that alone has generated a lot of attention. So those points lead me to a very simple question, which is gonna to direct towards Tanya and just basically ask what is all of this about? Yeah, well, good question. Um, so there are a number of reasons why nuclear is in the spotlight at the moment and why it's part of the decarbonization strategy for many countries. Um, you know, Firstly, nuclear is low carbon. Um, it produces no greenhouse gas emissions during operation and over the course of a life cycle will produce about the same amount of, of CO2 equivalent emissions um, as a wind farm um, per unit of electricity and you know only a third of the emissions um, when compared with, with solar per unit of electricity. Um, so secondly it provides baseload power increasingly important now in light of the increasing use of renewable energy which provide intermittent power to the grid so nuclear essentially provides a reliable source of electricity, which is an important component of, of grid stability. Uh, and, and some nuclear plants now contribute to that stability by backing up the intermittent renewable energy through flexible operation um, or load following. So, you know, in other words, adjusting production as electricity demand fluctuates. Uh, and, and in fact, the European utility requirements specify that all new reactor designs must be capable of load following um, of between sort of 50 to 100 percent of capacity and, and most new uh, small modular reactors and advanced modular reactors will be able to do this more efficiently and th there are also a number of synergies as well with things like hydrogen uh, industrial heat desalination renewables you know and all of these themselves are, are forming part of the energy transition as well you know if you look at currently you know 
nuclear um, power has a lot of um, waste heat and you can use that waste heat uh, for things like district heating, uh, industrial heating, um, and also to produce low carbon hydrogen um, as well when the electricity demand is low. So there are a number of, of co-generation options associated with nuclear. So as a result with countries you know, seeking to achieve decarbonization as well as energy independence, you know, in light of current political and economic factors, nuclear for, for these reasons is really very much part of the solution. Yeah, thanks, Andy. I mean, Andy, you, you mentioned uh, the taxonomy. Um, yeah, as you know, the adjustment to the, to the taxonomy has not been without uh, controversy. There are a number of European countries which are ideologically opposed to nuclear. Um, but the current status is that absent a blocking majority, which is highly unlikely, uh, that taxonomy will support nuclear development uh, at least up to 2045, uh, which means that investment in uh, new nuclear uh, will be regarded as a sustainable investment um, for taxonomy purposes and for reporting, etc. Um, <clears throat> and of course, the catalyst, catalyst for this has been um, the decarbonisation agenda uh, and energy security issues, which have been brought uh, into a lot of focus recently, obviously. Um, I think it's important to remember that most carbon emissions do not come from the electricity industry, but from other sources such as heating and transport. Uh, and so achieving net zero carbon means very significant further electrification is needed. Um, and this will need zero or low carbon sources. Um, this needs to be combined with clean fuels such as clean hydrogen that can be used in hard to electrify sectors. Overall, this is going to mean uh, massive increases in clean electricity production required over the next few years. I think when you look at that need, uh, it's increasingly accepted by governments, uh, by intergovernmental bodies such as the UN, etc., and uh, increasingly by the investor community that these goals are not going to be achieved by renewables alone uh, and that nuclear is necessary. Uh, as Tanya points out, not only is it necessary, but it, it's uh, a baseload uh, dispatchable source uh, and so it's highly syn synergistic with uh, intermittent renewables. And so while some can countries... Up, can I just interrupt you there, Neil, and ask yeah. you, so when you're saying that it's um, a, a baseload, just to make sure I understand what you're saying, in other words, it, it, taking the simple example of a wind farm, the wind doesn't always blow, so, the yeah. wind, so, so if the turbine's not turning, it doesn't generate electricity, and at that point, nuclear would step in and provide electricity, is that what we're saying? I mean, baseload means it is a reliable producer of electricity at, um, uh, at high efficiency levels or a steady state levels. And, and the fact that it's able to do that and is um, dispatchable uh, means that it's always reliably available to, um, to match the uh, intermittent troughs in renewable production. Got it. So does this... Neil, does this mean there's more money being directed towards nuclear projects? I um, I, I, you know, I've understood that historically there's been a number of challenges with directing funds into uh, big nuclear projects and getting them off the ground. So, so some of the changes you're talking about in taxonomy, et cetera, is that going to help uh, make this an easier sell for investment purposes? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a very good point. I, I think if you look at... Um, investment 
that is required for nuclear and the planned uh, nuclear programs in a number of countries, even if you look across Europe, uh, where there's just a huge amount of uh, a huge amount of new new investment in nuclear plant, um, th there is a challenge, and there has been a challenge in the past. Uh, will the taxonomy mean money flooding into nuclear? Uh, I think the answer is no, not on, on not on its own. Um, you know, what we hear is that institutional investors are saying that the taxonomy removes what would otherwise be a substantial block on investment, but there are at least two further issues. Um, firstly, if you look at the institutional investors um, for funds, the, the underlying investors may have their own views on whether they wish to invest in nuclear. Um, I think that those views are changing uh, as the story develops around what nuclear can achieve in decarbonization uh, and energy security, uh, and in terms of uh, views on, on nuclear safety. I think secondly, even if it's philosophically attractive to investors, it still needs to be, to be a sound investment. Yeah, and I think also there's um, a fair amount of work needed in many countries to create a suitable regulatory and economic framework for nuclear. So, you know, things like the UK's Nuclear Energy Financing Act is, is definitely a step in the right direction um, mm -hmm. because it envisages the use of a regulated asset-based model to fund nuclear projects. Um, and this is important because, you know, it reduces the overall cost of financing um, by providing some insulation from cost overruns um, and, and also enables investors, you know, to generate a return throughout the construction phase as well as just the operation phase. Um, but, you know, Still, we need more clarity on what the RAB model will look like. And, you know, this will therefore enable investors to really understand the risk profile for, fu for funding nuclear projects in the UK. So, so there are some barriers that still need to be addressed. Um, and, you know, the industry needs to demonstrate that it can build nth of a kind plants efficiency, efficiently um, and, you know, avoid some of the recent problems with, with cost and time overruns um, experienced on, on recent first of a kind projects as well. It certainly seems like they need less big headlines about cost overruns and and length of time that these projects have taken. But but let, let's change directions just a little bit because you mentioned um, hydrogen and other renewables at, at, earlier in when we were talking, and I just want to pick up on that. And because um, you know, there's some views that that renewables and hydrogen are ultimately the answer to achieve net zero targets. So why is it that you think? nuclear is is also needed to be part of the the energy transition yeah okay i think you know hydrogen is certainly part of the answer um but of course hydrogen is not a primary energy source uh, it's only an energy vector or carrier uh, and so you need primary energy sources such as renewables or, or nuclear to to produce hydrogen uh there are various ways of producing clean hydrogen uh renewable energy uh, nuclear energy or natural gas combined with carbon capture and storage. Um, the, the importance of uh, clean hydrogen, um, I think two main advantages. One, it can be used as a clean fuel in hard to electrify sectors, such as industrial process heat or marine transportation where electricity uh, is not suitable. Um, and then secondly, uh, hydrogen as a storable gas um, addresses some of the inherent issues you have with electrical systems uh, in relation to system constraints, uh, transportation, uh, and storage. So uh, I think hydrogen as a as a clean gas potentially, um, you know, largely replacing 
natural gas in our gas systems, uh, you know, certainly is part of the answer. Uh, I think um, the the issue with um, hydrogen and renewables not being sufficient on their own is the point that, that we talked about earlier, that the huge amount of increased electricity, which is going to be needed uh, to drive these changes, uh, is just not achievable uh, simply through, through re uh, renewables. Um, the good news is that nuclear is not only synergistic with renewables, uh, but if you look at a combined nuclear and renewable electricity system uh, with its intermittency and surplus balance characteristics, this allows production of hydrogen when generation would otherwise be constrained. Uh, <clears throat> and so it produces an overall more efficient system. Uh, and because nuclear can produce hydrogen through high temperature electrolysis or thermochemical uh, production, uh, it can be a stable, highly efficient hydrogen producer, uh, but also produce hydrogen at a um, significantly lower cost uh, than renewables uh, on their own. Uh, so I think you know, there are clear advantages of renewables, hydrogen uh, and nuclear together. Thank you. Um, th there's a lot of jargon in, the, in, in this world as well. So I want to I want to pick up on something that, that also Tanya mentioned before, I think, which was SMRs and AMRs. W what are they? And, and do you think they're the game changers the nuclear industry needs, particularly when we think you were talking earlier about the time and cost overruns, etc.? Okay, well, what, what are they and, and, and why are they important or what's their relevance? Um, <clears throat> there are a lot of talk about small modular reactors and advanced modular reactors. Uh, small modular reactors or SMRs are, are traditional light water nuclear reactors based on current technologies, uh, but smaller sized up to 300 megawatts. And so we're seeing all sorts of micro reactors of, you know, one and a half, two megawatts to, to 300 megawatt size. Uh, while AMRs are modular reactors which use generation four technologies, such as fast neutron reactors, uh, high temperature reactors, molten salt reactors, um, and <clears throat> and so uh, have a significant um, increase in their in their capability, particularly their capability outside just pure electricity production. Um, so the attraction of of SMRs or AMRs is the economy of scalability um, and reduced construction time and risk through factory fabricated units. So the hope is, is that combined with uh, gigawatt scale reactors and some of the headlines that you've talked about with gigawatt scale reactors and you know delays and cost overruns, uh, the hope is for reduced um, risk profiles, overall a lower cost of power, enhanced safety features which are inherent in, the, in um, SMRs and AMRs, uh, and so wider deployment opportunities. Um, <clears throat> and so not only do they have the prospect of uh, addressing some of the problem areas that gigawatt scale reactors are faced, uh, but they can also provide a much more compatible product for new energy systems uh, with significantly wider uh, siting potential. Uh, so they can be sited uh, because they have much uh, smaller exclusion zones, et cetera. Uh, much closer to industrial or, or um, population centers. Uh, and as Tani was mentioned, you know, the, uh, they're able to um, significantly utilize the, what would otherwise be waste heat. Um, they have load uh, following capability. They're able to, pro uh, can be 
uh, able to process and um, or provide process and district heat supplies. Uh, they've got energy storage capabilities and some of the technologies um, and some of the technologies have clean hydrogen uh, production capabilities. Uh, and so uh, these additional capabilities really enhance their value and the overall economics. Uh, and so with these potential advantages, it's, it's not surprising that there are maybe, I think over 70 um, different designs under development at the moment, while there are only a handful of gigawatt scale reactor uh, developers. Um, but I mean, but the fact is that the, the number of uh, potential designs and the differences in these potential designs does uh, produce its own challenges as well. Yeah, it's like it's fairly promising. So, let, Tanya, do you think they are a game changer or or not? Um, I think while there are a lot of potential advantages, um, it's probably too early to say that they are a game changer, um, because for the economics of of SMRs and AMRs to work, it really requires the deployment of multiple largely factory-based fabricated units um, and across multiple markets with very small variations in design. So as Neil was saying, the number of designs that are out there combined with the various differences in the regulatory standards and approval processes across the various jurisdictions means that there is a regulatory challenge. Um, so what we need for SMRs and AMRs to be successful is a higher degree of harmonization um, both in terms of standards, but also the licensing processes for these reactors. Um, and there have been efforts made on the harmonization piece over the over the years, but um, the IAEA uh, most recently um, has set up an initiative, which will hopefully mean there is some change in this area because it, it is focusing not only on standards and licensing, but also it's looking at more standardized industrial processes as well for the nuclear sector. Um, and this is all with the intent to drive um, an acceleration in the deployment of, of SMRs and AMRs to, to really maximise their contribution in achieving net zero goals. So while there's a, a way to go, there is certainly um, positivity around SMRs and AMRs and, and what they can bring to, to decarbonisation. Um, and we are you know, recently be seeing a number of, of concrete steps being taken um, in this regard. So it is quite a positive outlook for, for SMRs and, and for nuclear more generally. Well, on that hopeful note, um, thank you very much for, um, for joining me for this conversation about the nuclear industry, which I certainly have found very helpful and illuminating. So thank you, Neil, and thank you, Tanya. Right, thanks, Andy. Thank you.